From the newsroom of the Rockford Register Star, here's what's new today. I'm Scott Yates, multimedia journalist with the Rockford Register Star. It's Thursday, January 30. We get to listen in on a full meeting of the Register Star editorial board. The board has begun its considerations of who to endorse in the race for Winnebago County State's Attorney in the Republican primary elections to be held on March 17. On Wednesday, the board met with Republican candidate Jay Hanley. That podcast is in your feed now. Today, the board met with Republican David Gill. Now let's drop in on the editorial board's conversation with David Gill. Uh, good morning. We're at the second interview of uh, Winnebago County State's Attorney candidates. Uh, today's guest is uh, David Gill, and uh, we're going to introduce ourselves around the table so that when we ask questions, you, will, you can kind of connect the voices with our questions. So, Mark? Uh, Mark Baldwin, Executive Editor. Michael Smith, a Community Board Member. Kevin Haas, I'm the Metro Editor. I'm not a member of the Editorial Board. David Gill, candidate for Winnebago County State's Attorney. Okay, and I'm once again, I'm Wally Haas. I'm the opinion editor, and thank you very much for being here today. Just uh, give us a little bit about your background and why you think that qualifies you for this office. Okay. I'm a practicing lawyer in Winnebago County. I've been practicing here for 19 years. All 19 years I've spent in the criminal courts in one fashion or another. The first nearly eight years I spent in the state's attorney's office out of law school. I was hired on as a misdemeanor trial team assistant, and from that point on, I worked my way eventually into the felony courts. Um, I handled everything from traffic all the way up through serious violent crime. I sent hundreds of people to prison. It's not, it's not something that I'm proud of necessarily, but it was a reality based on my case assignments. Um, and I worked in the state's attorney's office through 2008. I'm the only candidate in this race that was that held a leadership spot within the office. I was uh, eventually supervising all the misdemeanor hires and new new attorneys, including my opponent in the in the upcoming primary race. Um, and then I left the office in December of 2008, and I've been private practice ever since. Again, those 11 years, I've also been very involved in the uh, criminal courts as well as the civil courts. As outside activities go, I'm chairman of the uh, Rock Valley Credit Union Board. I'm on the board for race, the Rockford Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation, a founding member of that group. Um, I'm also on the executive board for Rockford Reach Out Jail Ministry, ministering to those that are incarcerated currently, men and women. And then uh, I'm also part of or president of NAMI Northern Illinois, which is the National Alliance of Mental Illness for Northern Illinois. Very good. From your perspective, what are the challenges within the office? What are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? What needs to be done? The, the strength has always been within the state's attorney's office, its ability to communicate the power of their position, okay? 
Um, the state's attorney has a tremendous amount of power in dictating how cases are handled, what the ultimate dispositions are subject to judicial approval, but uh, that office inherently has that kind of power. Over the last few years, over the last 11 years really, it has been marginalized in some ways because many, many cases have gone to trial that shouldn't have gone to trial, um, which have resulted in what I would consider to be embarrassing losses, not only for the office but the community. One specific case that really stands out? Well, just in the, in the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. There were two defendants that were accused of murder that essentially beat the rap, if you will, um, and then we just had one on Monday. Right, right. And I've talked to people that know, and there is a great deal of uh, second-guessing as to why those cases even went to trial. The, the two co-defendants that uh, won their trial they were trials. charged like murder by proxy, just for the sake of the podcast listeners. They were in charge of actually firing the weapon, but only supplying the weapon, sure. the lookouts, and then eventually they were found not guilty uh, last week. Well, in the most embarrassing fashion, because what happened is that uh, the judge directed the state out. The defense didn't even have to put on an ounce of evidence. By the time the state got done putting on their case, the judge had already determined that there wasn't enough to even let it continue. So in that realm, I think that is self-defeating. You know, one of the, one of the phrases that uh, Paul Logley had put on the wall in the state's attorney's office was uh, out of our ethics code, which was uh, that it's the duty of a prosecutor to seek justice, not merely convict. And that's, that's something that all of us have to live with. All of us have to live by. And to know that somebody is pushing forth a case that is that precarious, there's no justice in that in any way that you look at it. There's no justice in it anyway. So it should have been reviewed within the office. I understand that it was, and it was told to proceed anyway. But, um, you know, I think that's the lack of insight in, in terms of case management overall. Do you think there's some uh, part of that where the prosecutor needs to stand up to pressure from law enforcement and may feel like they've collected enough evidence, or do you, do you have a sense of where a case like that may fall apart in the lines? My understanding is that the pressure came from the top down, mm -hmm. from from the appointed state's attorney, right? So, you know, so uh, talk a little bit more. You know, what do you see as the greatest challenge within the office? What would What would you want to change on day one? The easiest thing to change on day one is the ability of the office to collect fines and costs. You, you know, you've recorded that the office is understaffed. It's, it's down at least 28 to 30 lawyers on any given day. That is not a quick fix. The quickest fix is dealing with the financial piece to it, the quickest and easiest piece. And, and that is going in and collecting all kinds of fees and fines that aren't currently being collected. With criminal justice reform that went into effect as of July 1st of last year, it's my estimation, and you can, you can do your own fact-checking on it, okay, that the state's attorney's office under-collected revenue by a million dollars a year. A million dollars a year. Since that change or previously? Prior to that change. 
prior to that change. Um, there are still hundreds of thousands of dollars that could be collected on on an annual basis that aren't being collected currently. That's what are some of those fines and fees that are not being collected. I'll give you a classic example. Uh, for every first-time DUI that comes through the system, every first-time DUI is managed by probation in some way, shape, or form, so that as part of your sentence, you have to do alcohol education classes and you have to attend a victim impact panel. All of that's managed by probation. Is there a probation fee tacked on to that? Not a one. Never, never. You go back and look. Never. Do other counties do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And... The maximum that you could do for per month for a court supervision sentence is $50. You can do anywhere from $50 to no dollars, okay? But that's part of the sentencing structure. And most of the people that commit DUIs can afford to pay those costs. Everything else that's in there is collected in some form or fashion, but that isn't. And that's hundreds of thousands of dollars that are lost every year. Um, prior to that, Prior to July 1st, there was a $750 equipment fee that was collected or should have been collected for every first-time DUI. It was $1,500 for every second or subsequent DUI. Was it collected in addition to the standard fines and costs? No. All of that money could have been collected to offset all of the budget problems that you've reported on the sheriff's budget, anybody else's budget, because that money would have been infused directly into the system to be able to offset certain things, but it, it never was. The second piece to it, um, the second most important thing to it is that if I understand my responsibility correctly, that once I win the primary, that I can begin to do a talent search to begin to pull people together to already have an established transition team. One of the glaring uh, gaffes, if you will, is that Marilyn Height-Ross knew for at least a month that she was going to transition and take over the state's attorney's office. It was, it was there. It wasn't a guarantee, a 100% guarantee, but it, the possibility was there. Did she develop a transition team? Did she go out and find talent to bring in to fill the 20-plus lawyers that were missing at the time that she took over, she didn't do it. She didn't do it. And that deficit remains t to this day. So one of the foresight things that I hope to do is then to be able to put together a transition team to pull some talent out. So when you look at the budgetary issues that are available to us, yeah, the, the office is down at least 20 lawyers. Are you going to be able to hire 20 lawyers? Maybe, but it would be irresponsible to do so because you're probably going to hire 20 entry-level lawyers. You're not going to have the capability, even if I'm in the courtroom myself, to be able to supervise and train all 20 lawyers unless they're following you around like a little group of duck, ducklings. You know, everywhere you go, there they are, learning everything that you do. But, um, but you go out and you harvest some talent because other counties have done it to us. Other counties have harvested our talent and taken some of our best and brightest young minds and mid-tier minds and taken them to their counties where they're getting paid tens of thousands of dollars more. They're getting better hours, less caseloads, certain things along those lines where 
why not go? It's worth the drive from Rockford to McHenry or to Ogle or somewhere else just so that they can get home and be with their families. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, recruiting talent. Mm-hmm. You know, I've already mentioned that, you know, other counties pay more. Mm-hmm. So how do you get a young lawyer out of school to want to come to Winnebago County? You have to go to them. Okay. When I was in the state's attorney's office and I was supervising the misdemeanor trial team, what we would do is myself and Michelle Rock, who was then in charge of the personnel piece pretty much, um, we would drive to NIU, we'd go down to U of I, we'd go to any, any law school in the area that would have a career day so that we could sit and take a, f- a few minutes, whether it was me or her or some combination thereof, and sit down with people and explain to them what great opportunities we have here. Are you going to make a million bucks in your first two or three years? No, you're not. That's the attractive thing about going and working in Chicago, but you're not going to do criminal work there either. Okay. If your desire is to do criminal work, if your desire is to make a direct contribution to the community of which you live, then prosecutorial or even defense work, being a public defender work, is the way to go. But you you go down there and you have those conversations. I've talked to the administration at NIU. Nobody's been down in years. The administration, the people that teach there, could identify to me people that they have in their classes that they teach on a regular basis that they know would be good prosecutors, except that nobody from our community is down there reaching out to them. That's, That's talent wasted. Talent wasted because, as you might know, we have a terrible reputation right now in terms of employment. People don't want to come here unless you're the third or fourth check down on their job search. Well, if you're their third or fourth check down, we might not want them either, but we do need them to keep the system moving. Some of the, the talent that's in the office, and I tell you, I'm in, in the criminal courts, unlike my opponent who hasn't been in a criminal court in Winnebago County in 11 years, I'm in there almost every day. Almost every day, I see the talent, and I see the lack of talent. I see people that are completely confused by what their responsibilities are. And I will, I will give great credit to Judge Doherty and uh, Judge Joe McGraw before as chief judges, where they have put systems in place to be able to encourage, if not pressure, the public defenders and the state's attorneys to spend time exchanging discovery, exchanging offers, making sure that the system is moving along outside of court. You'd, you'd be amazed at how much time is spent in court having those kind of negotiation conversations, and it even happens with the private bar. The private bar doesn't have direct communication with the prosecutor, and unfortunately, to have a steady same prosecutor every time that you go to court is almost a near impossibility. So when you go to court and you try and negotiate with one person who isn't responsible for that case file, they're going to send you off and say, no, you need to come back when they're here. Well, that builds in natural delays into things that shouldn't be, and they, in the courts are, are trying to adjust that and move move things along. Okay, so once you recruit the talent here, how do you get them up to speed? How do you train them? When I was, when I was hired, um, Dave Kosky was the 
person responsible for doing all the direct hiring. Paul Logley didn't. He was largely the administrator, the figurehead. And Dave Kosky made you agree, suggested that you agree to a two-year deal, that you come in and you work for two years. We're going to invest our time and efforts into you to build you up as a trial lawyer. And after the two years, you can do whatever you want to do. You can either stay with us or go. Okay, It's within that, that after that two-year part that you really begin to see whether the talent is developing in the right way or if it's time for somebody to move on. If they stay to that fifth year, they're going to be a career prosecutor. It's going to be ingrained in them. That's, that's the beauty of the process. But within those first two years, you have to take them and shape them. Everything that you learn in law school is theory until you actually apply it, okay? And you don't really get an opportunity to, to apply it unless you're either taking trial ad classes, which still you're, you're just doing theory and practice portions, or you become a 7-Eleven, which is a licensed intern, if you will, that allows you to practice law. You have to be a second year or greater to, to achieve that. Then you can go and you can do real courtroom work and real trial work. When I was a supervisor and I supervised those uh, young men and women, what I would do is I would go to court with them when necessary. I had my own felony caseload, so I had things that I, I was responsible for outside of it. But I would go to court with them and work with them and watch how they interacted with people and, and try and discern if, if they were open or closed prosecutors. Okay? Closed prosecutors are the type that will say no to everything. Open prosecutors will listen and determine if, if there's some movement in terms of sentencing ranges. Um, and if you had a closed prosecutor, you had to kind of work them through it to give them a greater sense of justice, to, for them to understand what their role is in the system. Because if you habitually say no, all you're doing is you're setting up yourself and the case for the inevitable trial outcome where things are just going to naturally gravitate in that direction. That can be a dangerous piece because when you're understaffed the way that the office is currently and when you have a massive caseload like they have comparative to their, their staffing, it becomes an overwhelming piece. I could show you I still have the dockets for when I was a misdemeanor trial team assistant, okay? When I, when I started in that office, there were three misdemeanor trial lawyers. Budget crisis that came in, in 2002, 2003 caused a contraction across the board in the county. And my misdemeanor trial team went from three people down to me. And my trial call, and I'm not kidding when I say this, I have the dockets to show it to you, my trial setting call, every case that was on the call that was set for trial was 75 to 100 cases. 75 to 100 cases. I lived up to my responsibility for 13 months while I was in misdemeanor, but it took me on a 31-month month, 31-day month, I worked 30 days. If it was a 30-day month, I was working 29 days. It was the only way that I could stay on top of my trial schedule and all my court responsibilities. No, no assistant should have to go through that. Nobody should have to go through that. You have to have a work-balanced life, but it was the situation at the time. But when you, when you learn by trial by fire, you learn a lot. You learn a lot. 
and you can pass those things on to the newbies so that they understand. The greatest thing that they can do, the single greatest thing that they can do is read the code. Read the law, because the law is what you're going to apply every single day. That's the greatest single thing that you can do. The next thing you do is ask other people to, to go to your direct supervisor, or if you've got somebody that has more experience within your, within your courtroom, is to sit and say, how do I handle certain things? How do I get through it? And if you don't, have the sense enough or the confidence enough to ask the judge. If nobody else is there, the judge is there. The judge is there to help you. And you start to, I've, I've heard people say it's a cultural thing within that office, okay? The culture is going to change by default in the, December, the November election. That's, that's going to happen as a natural course of business. The next person that comes in has to be a definable leader, somebody that can sit there and take not only the, the top talent, but the low and rank and file, and teach them, train them, m mentor them, inspire them, move that whole office as an entity forward. And if you have to rearrange things, and it's happened once or twice, where felony lawyers have to help out misdemeanor lawyers, and they don't like it because it seems like it's a step down, but it really isn't a step down. Everything that every one of those prosecutors do in that office is for the betterment not only of the office, but certainly the betterment of the community. And everybody should understand that going into it. So, you know, you touched a little bit on, on culture. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what do you know about caseloads today, and how does that affect the prosecutors in the office? Caseloads are heavy, but they're not as heavy as when I was in the office, okay? okay. Um, you said yours was like 75 to 100? That was just a week trial setting. Okay. That wasn't my caseload. And that's a felony trial. No, that that, that, was, that was misdemeanors okay. alone. If you're if you're going to compare me, and you shouldn't to to that piece. But when I went to felony, I was split between Judge Collins and Judge Joe McGraw. So every week was a trial week for me. Judge Collins had first and third. Joe McGraw had second and fourth. Every week was a felony trial week for me. I think the office did that to me because of everything that I had already gone through in the previous 13 months. But, um, but um, you know, to, to sit there and say, should everybody do that? No, no, everybody shouldn't do that. But the caseload has to be evaluated. And there have been times when I was there that we would do a, a comprehensive caseload evaluation and see where cases were out there because Believe it or not, some prosecutors are natural-born hoarders. They keep cases. They don't, they don't um, resolve cases on a, on a fast enough basis. And you have to be able to see that. And the quickest way to do it is just to go and open up a file drawer and see what's available to them okay, within their office. But you do a, a case evaluation to see how, how much they have. If they can be redistributed, redistribute them. If you need some help, we'll get some help. If they don't necessarily have to be within a courtroom, maybe we can see if they can get it sent down to a, a less volume courtroom. 
there are a number of ways to speed up the process. I would hesitate to do what they call a slaughter call. A slaughter call is things that happened before my time in the state's attorney's office, but it was a reality at, at that time, where if they accumulated a slew of cases that weren't moving through the system, they would just sit down and evaluate which cases should be dismissed outright. Just get rid of them. Don't even focus your attention on them. And is that an option? It's always an option, but it's not. That, that's your, in my opinion, your DEFCON 5. You don't get there unless you're so understaffed and so overwhelmed that there's no other means to an end for justice. What about fast track, uh, which I hear brought up every once in a while? Yeah. The courts have tried it twice, okay? So when I first came on, um, there was courtroom 210 on the second floor, and courtroom 210 was your low-grade felony courtroom. And your low-grade felonies went there, your retail theft, some prostitution, some, you know, low-level things. And they all went there to be hopefully quickly disposed of, except that they would go there and they would languish six or eight or ten months and then when nothing happened meaningfully, then they would get put on the trial call, and they would move from that courtroom and then be distributed out through the, excuse me, the felony trial judge's call, okay? And so those cases would be hundreds of them there that some would get resolved and then some wouldn't, and then they'd pepper through. Well, then there was this idea that we would just eliminate courtroom 210 and have all of those cases go through because what was found is when you sit there for nearly a year, then you go and you get on a trial call in another courtroom, you're going to sit there for another year. It's just the natural order of things. So the built-in delay for people that were dragging their feet, public defenders, private bar, all know this dirty little secret. The time is a killer for a state's case. If you let things go too long, People move away. Witnesses die. Um, they change their stories. They recant. They do all kinds of things. Time is a killer for cases. So to allow something to languish in a courtroom like that and then be decided that nine or ten months later it's going to go up to another courtroom oftentimes hurts the, the ultimate goal of the prosecution. Well, then, after the caseload's bulged out uh, a little bit there the court came back and said no we're going to try a fast track court and they started a fast track court and the idea was you're either going to come into this court and we're going to make you an offer that we hope you take and if you do take it your case is resolved if you don't take it then the natural order of things is that you're going to go up to the trial courts again and then you're going to be on the trial call didn't work there either. You would go in and there would be discovery issues. You'd make your first appearance in court and the state didn't have all the police reports necessary to make an informed decision from the police department yet, so then you had to kick the case out for a little while. Then obviously when you did have the reports and you gave them to the public defender or the private lawyer, they had to review it and they had to sit down with their client and have an opportunity to do it, so then there's another delay. And then you get down through it, and then they have to investigate it. When they come up with their theory of the case, then they want a trial because they, it shouldn't be fast-tracked because he's not going to plea. Then it goes right back up to the trial courts. 
They found that didn't work, so they eliminated it. Okay? The possibility of a fast-track court would have to be so narrow in focus that all you did were felony retail thefts, certain property crimes that were immediately and obviously provable. Because if you took anything that required any type of analysis from a, you know, the Illinois State Police Crime Lab or something like that, you would never be able to fast-track it. So it's, a, and it's an absolute fallacy to say you could do cases like that within 160 or 180 days. You could do some of them, but you couldn't do the vast majority of the cases that come through the criminal justice system because justice would never be served. You would have a number of people that would ultimately be wrongfully convicted because the evidence didn't come back from the crime lab to show that the drugs that they had weren't really drugs or the DNA evidence didn't come back to them or something like that that would be so irreparably damaging to the system to have to back up and apologize and give reparations to somebody that was wrongfully incarcerated and things like that. It doesn't serve the system. It doesn't serve the system. The system, in terms of case management, is largely a judicial function. The judges are ultimately responsible. And I believe that Judge Doherty and Judge McGraw before did a very fine job in terms of managing individual caseloads. They have a team of people that sit in the back on the second floor in the offices that watch caseloads as they come through and how cases progress through the system. That isn't really a state's attorney's obligation. We're, we're ob obliged to provide evidence in a timely fashion so that whether it's inculpatory or exculpatory, that somebody has all the information that they need to present an adequate defense for themselves. That's what our responsibility is in the very basic sense. Yeah, I mean, if time's the only thing for the prosecutor, and, you know, obviously fast track, you're saying isn't the ultimate solution and there's a lot of judicial responsibility. Is there a role, though, that you see yourself playing in making sure that you uh, can prosecute cases in those timely manner? The, the cases that absolutely need attention like that are any cases that involve child children as victims, okay? Because a day, a day is a week in a child's mind. A week is a month. A month is a year. And every day that you let child sex cases, child abuse cases, anything related to a child where the child is a potential witness, languish, the, the memory, the recollection, the susceptibility of that child being influenced by an outside source to falsely remember, all of those things accumulate over time, and all of it is at the detriment of the state being able to adequately prosecute cases. That, in my mind, are the top priority of cases that should have attention like that, that when it comes down to turning in evidence at the crime lab, that, yeah, it needs to be expedited. It absolutely needs to be expedited. I was encouraged by the governor's comments yesterday about um, wanting to build a, a new crime lab, okay, because there's at least a four-month backlog, at least a four-month backlog. And one of, the, one of the drug technicians is going out on maternity leave. 
they're not hiring anybody to fill that position. So if they didn't do any of that woman's testing, there's going to be another built-in 6 to 12 weeks of cases just hanging out there, hanging out there. That can't happen when you've got something as serious as a child, child victim crime. Where are your priorities? Where, uh, where, are, uh, where is domestic violence? Domestic violence is high. And I will, I can't categorically say that it's number one, but it's, it's right up there. You've reported on the statistics, and it's pathetic. 58% of those cases are lost at trial. There are a number of cases that aren't reported that come through the system that there are some satisfactory dispositions for, and to a large extent, lots of satisfactory dispositions for. Not everybody that comes through the domestic violence courts are savage abusers. There are things that happen, a push, something, that can be easily remedied, rehabilitated by some education, some counseling, some treatment, some certain things like that. And then there are some people that are habitual abusers. And they're habitual abusers because they have been victimized themselves. One of the key things that I would like to do is to make sure that every prosecutor that's in any of those courtrooms that handles any of those cases are trauma-informed prosecutors, people that not only can identify the trauma in the victim and be sympathetic and empathetic to what is happening with the victim, but then also to apply some of that to the abuser too. Because if there is a possibility of being able to effectively rehabilitate the abuser, let's take that opportunity. If not, the only other option usually for felony cases like that is to send them to the Department of Corrections. If somebody is already an animal, they're only going to go and be worse than what they were before they went in. It's a natural order of things. It takes great self-discipline to go to the Department of Corrections and come out a better person than you went in. And most of the people that go there don't. That's, that's the reality of it. The office has not had what I would consider to be quality prosecutors for some time in that, in that division. Now, I don't mean to insult the people that are in there. I don't, because there are some good, well-meaning people within that division. But they haven't received the amount of training that they need to effectively prosecute those cases. It isn't just um, going to a seminar and learning some things. It isn't. It's actually being tactical about your approach towards things. Because, you know, one of the greatest things about the, the Family Justice Center is that everything is going to be housed in one location pretty much, which prevents people from falling through the cracks. So when somebody needs those services, they're gonna, it's essentially one-stop shopping. It's too much to go into in the time, but that's been something that has been around since I was in the weed and seed effort in this county, okay? One-stop shopping, the whole idea of centralized services. When you have something like that, you have the greatest opportunity of keeping the victim involved in the prosecution. When you don't have something like that, that's when all of a sudden they are like leaves in the wind and they're blowing all over and you don't know where they're at. And they, 
if the abuser is their their primary caretaker and they're locked up for a long time, this person gets evicted and then you can't find them any longer. The the key piece to effective prosecution for domestic violence is from the time that that 911 call is made, from the time that the 911 call is made, that the 911 operator does everything in their power to gather all the information that they can get, all of it, because that 911 tape is great evidence. But if that 911 tape, for whatever reason, isn't gotten within 30 days, it's lost. And all we have is the CAD ticket for which the operator put in that information. If the operator is putting in the same type of information that they're listening to, at least then there's an electronic record of it. But that becomes the base. Then it's the responding police officer that comes out and their interaction not only with the victim but with the abuser. Detectives needing to follow up. Strangulation issues, okay, very serious, very lethal, very lethal. But when somebody is strangled, when somebody is grabbed around the neck and choked, you may see a line, you may see some kind of fingerprints on them, or you may not. Some of those things don't manifest themselves for three or four or five days. Some of the injuries that are caused in terms of the ligatures and the neck and the like aren't visible and aren't noticeable unless there's medical treatment. And unless some of that is found out that somebody went to the doctor two or three days later because they couldn't swallow any longer, and the detectives gather that information to bolster the prosecution, if nobody follows up on that, all of it's lost. All of it is lost. That's where it's not only the state's attorney's obligation to educate the people within the office, it's also then our obligation to make sure that law enforcement and anybody else associated with it has a better understanding of what their responsibility is to get us that information. What should the office's role be in the Peace Center? Ideally, there should be a dedicated prosecutor. Um, ideally, I would hope that it would be closer to the courthouse than what it is. Um, I know that there was some talk of even putting it further out in East State, but um, but ideally there should at least be one prosecutor there, one dedicated prosecutor, one dedicated prosecutor to the domestic violence unit, not not an intern, not somebody from the Zeke Georgie Legal Clinic or something that's that's there and then they're not. You need somebody there. You need somebody there that makes the connection and maintains the connection with the victim that's there so that they're assured, the victim is assured that the person that they're dealing with is reliable and trustworthy and will work with them through the system, whether that lawyer or that victim advocate that might be there too, whether those are the same people that are taking your case to trial or not, that they're there for confidence that the case is going to be effectively prosecuted and that justice is served whether it's in the victim's best interest or not you, you've touched on this briefly but yeah how do you know one of the biggest challenges is to get victims to testify sure how do you work with victims to get them to you know really as you mentioned sometimes it's a primary caregiver to testify against that person. it's it's a difficult piece but uh, again depending on the the type and severity of the injury, okay? The very first thing is to maintain a relationship with 
them all the way through, to, to build confidence, to get a continued relationship with them. But the secondary piece is to involve them in the decision-making, okay, to involve them. As the state's attorney, even the judges, they're not bound to do what the victim wants, but at least to allow them to have some input to say, this is the first time it ever happened. I believe that there's good in him or her. They can be rehabilitated. I would be satisfied with a probation sentence and partner abuse intervention programming, 26-week class, and certain other conditions placed upon them. Well, that's great. Then they have input, and then they kind of, they do have a sense of control of what the, the outcome is. But on, conversely, if they're going to be obstinate about it and not come in, not want to see the, the prosecution through, you got to do your level best to keep tabs on them, to find them. Um, and I know I've been a little critical about it, but I think justifiably so. The state's attorney's office has all law enforcement resources at their, at their fingertips, okay? They can call the domestic violence unit of the Rockford City Police Department. They can call the domestic violence unit of the sheriff's department. They have their own investigators, three of them, that could go out and track somebody down. You can go out as a prosecutor and ride around with the law enforcement officers to track these people down and make the connections and find them yourselves and make sure that they get served subpoenas. But none of that happens. None of that happens. And that's where there has to be a fundamental retooling of things. So when you're, when you're talking about staffing issues, yeah, there needs to be a core group of domestic violence prosecutors who are seasoned professionals that can take a case and understand victimization and develop good rapport with victims, but then also be able to sit and say, we're going to do our level best to prosecute even the victimless crime or the, uh, you know, the, the type of crimes where the victims go underground and disappear on you. So treating it just exactly like a murder. Bodiless murders are convicted all the time. If the proper type of evidence is gathered to allow the prosecution to be able to move forward, you're going to have effective prosecution. And that's where, really, training of law enforcement comes in, too. Do you agree with uh, uh, Casey Gwynn's take? And for the sake of listeners, Casey Gwynn is a, uh, a guy who's one of the founders of this Family Peace Center idea. He came here and reviewed uh, the Winnebago County State's Attorney's Office uh, earlier or early last year and concluded that too many cases were being dismissed when prosecutors didn't have um, the victim able to testify. Is that something that you would uh, that, that you saw in your own, yourself was happening too often? Do you have any take on whether or not that was an accurate assessment? It is an accurate assessment. And all I'd ask of you or any other listener that's interested is to go and sit in the domestic violence courtroom on a jury call and watch them fold one after the next, after the next, after the next. It happens routinely, routinely. Part of the Part of the problem where people don't understand the criminal justice system as to how the whole thing operates is that when you, when you take something like the sheriff's budget and you manipulate the sheriff's budget, okay, the sheriff has the, <clears throat> the greater responsibility of policing the county than the other real effort of, of managing everything in the jail. And then 
one of these quiet little things that the sheriff is responsible for is paper service. And paper service is your orders of protection, paper service is your eviction notices, but paper service is also subpoenas. And if paper service is cut or reduced down to just one or two people, and they're responsible for doing all of those things, how many times do you think that they're going to go out and try and serve a subpoena? Once or twice at best. And if they get no response, they're going to return the subpoena. And that's all the state knows is that the subpoena wasn't served. That is injustice. That is how some of these things have to come around. And to come full circle on it, the state's attorney's office is one of the single greatest fund generators in county government. And if the state's attorney's office lived up to its responsibility and to its best effort imposed fines and costs in the way that it should be, that the revenue streams would be there one way or the other, whether directly or through collections, but they would be there to be able to offset some of these things so that we wouldn't have to worry about paper service not being able to go out and serve a subpoena. One of the saddest transitions that I saw in the office was that because of things like that, the state's attorney's office went shifted towards sending out notices to appear, okay? Notices to appear are glorified invitations to a party. You can get it. You can reject it. You don't have to go. But that was an effort to cut down on the number of subpoenas that they had to send out. The opening statement on a, on a subpoena is, you are commanded to appear. It's not an invitation. And once it's served, then the court has the authority to command you or compel you to come in. That is the importance of a subpoena. If those things aren't done, this is where justice starts to fall apart in many different ways across the board. Let me, let me, I want to shift gears just a little bit here. Um, gun crimes, mm-hmm. it's probably the most the scariest thing that people, people uh, see or sometimes hear in their neighborhoods. What, you know, what new directions would you take to prosecute gun crimes to get the guns off the streets? I think the the first and most important piece to it is to educate the public. And I know it sounds odd to come at it from that direction, but there's a lot of influence that mothers and fathers and grandparents have over over children as to what they're doing in the community. You can educate them, you can educate the kids directly as to what the implications are going to be if they play with guns. Now, that being said, internally, the very first thing is to take a very firm approach to prosecuting those cases. The previous administration set up a a gun crimes task force, one of the very first initiatives that were implemented, okay, and they, they had four prosecutors there, and within a year, three of those prosecutors were gone. Did they replace a single one? No. Did they keep that gun crime unit available? No. Okay. You have to put in the standards, the criteria, as the leader of the office for public safety purposes as to how things are going to go. There are certain things, and I'm, I'm a, I have a Floyd card and concealed carry, and I respect the Second Amendment, but I will tell you that to respect the Second Amendment, you also have to protect it. And by protecting it, you have to protect the amendment from the people that abuse it. 
and that requires certain things like heavy sentences when it comes down to gun crimes. That isn't really something that is rehabilitatable. It's not something that's rehabilitatable. That is, that is one of the functions of government is that it's, it's a punishable crime. It's not a rehabilitatable crime. Because if you went through all the hoops to go out there and get money in some fashion to go out and buy an illegal gun to then go out and perpetrate a crime or just got caught with it before you perpetrated the crime, either way the intent is there. Either way the intent is there. That isn't really rehabilitatable unless you try and educate them first. Beyond that, um, you know, the greatest thing that I can say is, yeah, punishment needs to be swift. Would you the opportunity to federalize some of those and send them to the U.S. Attorney? Well, that's, that's the beauty of the relationship between the state's attorney and the U.S. Attorney is that um, the U.S. Attorney will come in from time to time and sit down, and uh, Project Safe Neighborhood was the impetus of things like that for gun crimes, to be able to sit down and identify certain types of gun crimes that could shift over for federal prosecution. It's, it's a win-win because they take it. They usually take the best of the best cases anyway. They take it. They get convictions. It reduces our overall caseload, and it sends a powerful message. I want to I also ask, uh, you're, you're also, uh, State's Attorney is also the lawyer for the county, and... You know, in the last year and, and three months, we've, we've seen uh, the state's attorney really sort of take sides in the, uh, in the uh, battle between the county board and the chairman. And, 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 you know, how would you walk that balance? You know, can you, what's your critique of the way things are now, and how would you write that balance? The, the critique is blatant overstepping. Okay. I've... In my private practice, I've had the opportunity to represent two clients for the same mutual goal, okay? But one of, the, one of the ethical obligations is that you can't represent both clients, and you have to go into it with the understanding that you can't represent both clients. You represent one, and the other one's the tag-along. The state's attorney has had no private practice experience in that regard. And I think that the blatant over, overstepping is a power issue on the one hand, but I think a, a patent misunderstanding of what the ethical role of a lawyer is in civil situations. So to write that is to sit and say, yeah, I represent one. I can advise you all but if it comes down to it, please understand that my responsibility is either to the county board, the county board chairman, the sheriff, whatever the particular responsibilities are. And if not, if I can't live up to that responsibility, then, yeah, it's absolutely required that if we don't have a meeting of the minds, that the one person or the one entity that I declared that I'm going to be operating on behalf of is the person that I stay with, and then the other one has to go out and find their own counsel. That's, that's the easiest and best way to reconcile it. If you go and, and get in, involved in the partisanship, the, the divisions, if you start doing that, you are directly or indirectly going to take sides as a natural course of business. 
and you as a lawyer as a lawyer have to be above that fray and if you can't satisfy either client if you can't satisfy either client and they don't have faith in you then you have to send them out to somebody else completely okay but the the greater piece to it is this represent one party represent that one party to your fullest ability and if the other party comes along and is agreeable to the deal that's great the 911 issue is a classic example of overstepping the county board and the municipalities had a deal worked out had a deal worked out and the audacity the audacity of the state's attorney to sit and say because this agreement was drafted by somebody else other than me i'm not going to honor it i'm going to tear it up we're going to start over from scratch no you have no authority to do that and i've told all the municipal leaders that i've talked to and i've talked to some county board people to say she doesn't have that authority and you let her have that authority and now you're in the problem that you're in so yeah that's a classic example of overstepping there's one thing I wanted to make sure we addressed when we talked a little about it yesterday uh, with, with Jay Hanley. Um, traditionally, the state's attorney's office hasn't um, kept any data to measure success. Is that something that you believe in doing? I know, for example, Maryland thinks uh, you track conviction rates, things like that. It can create tunnel vision for prosecutors just to chase conviction rates. Do you, do you believe in tracking any data and sharing anything like that publicly? Oh, yeah. And, and that's a f it's not you promoting a falsehood, but it's a falsehood, okay? Prior to Joe Bruscato, that office kept data. Jim Brunn, who's in that office currently, Jim was responsible for that. Jim didn't really have a trial call back then. Jim was responsible for caseload management and following cases through. There was somebody there that did it, okay? For the last 11-plus years, it hasn't happened because somebody has decided that they didn't think those metrics were important. Those metrics are important. Those metrics are important because not only are you looking at your overall success rate, but if you also then start to, if you weren't paying attention to it to begin with, start to look at who the attorneys are that are in the cases, who they're up against, where were they good matches for the types of cases that they were taking to trial, were they good matches for the type of defense lawyer that they were up against, okay? All of that has to be taken into consideration as to what your success level is going to be. Just because it's a golden goose case, lands right in your, your lap, and you think everything is great and you're going to be able to effectively prosecute it, you still have 12 jurors that are there to make up their own mind. And if you've got somebody that is just a little bit more persuasive, they don't have to be factually right, but a little bit more persuasive than you are, you're going to lose. You're going to lose. And those are the types of things that you have to do when you manage people. You're not managing statistics necessarily. You're managing people. And when you have what should be the biggest law firm in town, pretty much, of 50 staff lawyers, it is your responsibility fundamentally to be able to understand their skill levels, understand what they're up against, understand whether or not they've earned the advancement. All of those things are, are wildly important. And the only way that you're going to get there as an administrator is to follow the numbers. You can't be in every courtroom every time and watch everything. You have to generate some basic core measurable numbers.
All right. And once you have those numbers, uh, do you intend to show those with the public? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, whether it's through a press release, you know, press conference, something like that. One of the things that I intend on doing is, even if I'm setting myself up for a fall, okay, is to sit down with you, sit down with the county board right after I'm in and say, this is the state of things as I find it, okay, to set the benchmark so that then we can all collectively track the success of the office. It isn't a matter of coming in and trying to f- see if I can you know, find my own position with the office and figure it all out. No, 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 no. Because for public safety purposes, and that's what we're here to talk about, public safety purposes, everybody's in the same boat. Everybody has the same risk. We have to understand the problem and the solution together to achieve it. That's the difference between having a politician as a figurehead versus a public servant. A politician is going to go in there and sit up there and receive all the glory and none of, none of the, the negativity about it. A public servant is going to go in and actually sit and say, I've been at, at the ground level, I've seen it, I've built organizations, I understand how things work, and all of us that are in the system are equally accountable. That's the only way that I see that this whole thing works out, is equal accountability. I think we're pretty much close to the end of the time here. Yeah, we, we, we do need to wrap up. Are there yeah. key metrics, though, we, before we, 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 we give a final statement, are there key metrics that you think need to be measured that uh, would be measured and shared? So the, the very first thing that you want to look at is case volume, mm-hmm. okay? And you have to divide case volume out through every court. Every court, juvenile court, abuse and neglect, traffic, misdemeanor, felony. You have, to, you have to break them all down. And then you look at the case volume, and then you begin to look at what's pled out. You don't have to look at the, the final outcome, but what has pled out, what are agreeable dispositions, what was dismissed and why, what has gone on to trial, okay, and then what the trial outcome was. You want to follow the natural progression of things through the courts do it. The courts do it. It's available. Why not internally within the state's attorney's office? Because you're ultimately responsible for how those things move through anyway. So that's the basic portion of it, is to case flow, assignments, and then um, you know what gets dismissed, what moves on to trial, and then the trial outcomes. All right. Uh, closing argument to the voters. Closing argument to the voters. I'm the only candidate in this race that has held a supervisory position within the state's attorney's office. I did it for two state's attorneys, both Paul Logley and Phil Nicolosi. Phil didn't have to, but he did. He recognized my ability in terms of mentoring, training, hiring staff within that office. I'm the only candidate in this race that has any substantial budgetary experience through my time with the uh, Rock Valley Credit Union taking an institution from $55 million now to $120 million. It's an intense budgetary process. I'm the only candidate that has that. I'm the only candidate that has effectively been in a criminal courtroom in the last 11 years that actually understands things on a firsthand basis, and it doesn't have to be anecdotal information that has been given to me to, to repeat to somebody. I'm the only candidate in this race that has the tools and the desire to effectively change 
the direction of the office and to lead it in this next decade or more because it is going to take two or three years to really effectively change the outcomes in that office. It's not, it's not an overnight piece. There are certain changes that can be made immediately upon walking in the door, but there is going to be a transition period of you know, at least 18 months to two years before you can really say we've hit our goals. Thank you. Okay. Um, that's kind of where we stop the tape. All right. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll wrap up the podcast for today. Uh, I think we are going to try to do a few more of these, right, uh, with uh, the chairman candidates. Yes, uh, we're going to try to do the chairman candidates. I still need to uh, extend invitations on that. This concludes the Register Star Editorial Board meeting with David Gill, a Republican candidate for Winnebago County State's Attorney, in the primary elections to be held on March 17. This show was made possible through the journalism of the Rockford Register Star. The episode's theme music is called Funk Game Loop by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and filmmusic.io and is used under a Creative Commons by 4.0 license. For more from the newsroom of the Rockford Register Star, go online at rrstar.com. Thank you.